reporting. This is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron and Abe. He's he's out in assignment. He's in New York right now. Uh, but Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we have to have these special bonus episodes. Whether it's one of our fun commentary tracks, some of the completely different, and this is completely different. Um, instead of doing a full episode this week based off Abe just being absent, um, I figured let's let's. I want to talk about Blinded by the Light, um, the new film uh, from director Gurinder Chadha. Uh, it's getting a lot of great reviews. It was a hit at Sundance. It was purchased for like fifteen million dollars, I think. Uh, and now it's you know it's hit out now. And I figured let's do a. Let's, I didn't want to do a major episode on like forty-seven meters down and Cage, which I didn't even watch, and I believe our guest is quite familiar with as far as the first film. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking about Blinded by the Light. And joining me today, we have from Battleship Retention and author of the book Cinematic Suffering. He's a dancer in the dark. It's Tyler Smith. Hello, thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, Tyler, how are you doing this this morning? Uh, I'm doing okay for the most part. Uh, as you and I were talking about off mic, I was up very late last night, uh, and so uh, my energy level will probably uh, be low. But at the same time, uh, I might feel so excited to talk about the movie that I that it gives me a boost. That does tend to happen. I, I mean, it helps when when you're talking about the boss, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> should get you going. <laughs> well, you were up late. I mean, as long as you didn't eat after midnight, I believe we're in the clear and everything. Oh my gosh, that's all I was doing. Like from min from twelve oh one until like four a.m., I just did nothing but eat. Is that a problem? I mean, we'll find out. I mean, yeah, shenanigans could occur, but you never know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, glad to have you here. Of course, it's been a it's been a minute. I think. So glad to be here. Yeah, uh, we had your uh, counterpart, uh, Mr. David Bax, on last week, so. What did you guys talk about? What did we talk about? We talked about scary stories to tell a bit. That pause was me thinking, what did we talk okay. about? <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, we... you said it in a way that suggested incredulity. Like, what did we talk about? <laughs> what didn't know? we talk about? You don't listen to Out Now on the week, the second it drops? You're not, you're not just dialing in? Of course you should know. Yes, we do you talk... listen, to, listen to any movie podcasts? I listen. Yes, I do. I listen to Film Spotting is probably the main okay. one that I listen to. I listen to Blank Check as well with Griffin and David. Um, okay. Film Spotting is the one where when it drops, I'm like, well, putting this on the iPod so I can listen to it at work today. Like that's that's okay. my go-to right away. You? Not really. Not anymore. I don't really listen to any podcasts anymore. Uh, like during my commute, I I've started listening to um, like audiobooks because um, it's the only quote-unquote reading that I'll ever get done uh, these days. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, podcasts have kind of fallen by the wayside. And I always feel bad about that because, you know, I do a movie podcast. I feel I should be dialed in to what uh, the podcasting community is doing, uh, but I am not. And so I'm always curious to know if other podcasters, especially uh, long-running ones, um, still listen to, to movie discussion. I do, and especially when, this is an interesting question, when it comes to movies that, like, I'm going to, Abe and I are going to review in the week, I try not to, like, listen to, like, if Film Spotting was doing a Blinded by the Light podcast, I wouldn't listen to that right away, because I'd rather, I don't want to be kind of, just like I don't read reviews before I write my own, I don't want to, like, listen to other discussion to kind of wrap my mind around, uh, you know, you guys also, by the Battleship Pretension I listen to as well, by the way. Hey, all right. (laughs) But, uh... And you yeah. know what? I, like you, when you didn't include it, I, I wasn't offended at all. Well, yeah, as it, well, because it just didn't occur. Like I, I saw David the other day at the screening for for Monos, and I didn't, I didn't think about talking to him about the podcast that we had just recorded together, just because it doesn't occur to me. Like it's, yeah. it's like it's like, well, I'm talking to you. I don't need to think about the time I listened or talked to you before. I'm just talking to yeah. you right now. So. 
and then every once in a while have a, I, I will have a friend who will reference a recent episode and I was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, because the minute an episode is done, it leaves my head uh, completely. Uh, but there are people that listen that are that have a much better memory for what we've talked about than, than I do. See, I'll send you a thing or David a thing like right when I hear it. I'll try to be specific about it so you like understand a context, but it'll be like, sure. the, you're a pain. Like I, I was grilling David a lot when like Black Panther came out and he was not a fan of Black Panther. <laughs> I right. Like, but I listened to it like maybe three or four weeks later after you guys had recorded it. So I have to like sure. back up and like get to it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, film spotting is one of the main ones to listen to. And I still, okay. yeah, I enjoy movie podcast. I, I mix it between that and like comedy bangling and never not fun, like sure. comedy podcasts just to basically just to clear things out. Just a, like music. I, during commutes is rarer these days um, unless there's like an album yeah. that came out or something i'm like i want to listen to the new tom york album or what have you yeah as much as i do love music i find that i'm i'm if i'm not careful like if i just put music on again during the commute uh it is entirely possible that i will suddenly just kind of phase out uh and realize that for seven minutes i haven't really been listening to the music mm-hmm. um and so, whereas if somebody is talking, I'm actually more likely to be to stay in stage. See, I get like that with audiobooks, which is weird because some mm. like if I'm not engaged by like, when I'm when I'm reading a book, I can easily tune out, even though I'm like looking at the words and I'm clearly progressing, but I'll like lose track of what's happening for whatever reason. Sure, it's that, that, yeah, that, it, that happens to me with audiobooks as well, where I'll just be like, well, I'm hearing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess mostly with with. Like audiobooks, I don't actually listen to narratives or or novels or anything like that. It's usually um, political or religious or something like that, uh, where the person is it. You know, in that context, it just sounds like somebody giving a long, fairly dry speech. But uh, because it's something that is relevant to me, uh, and because it's meant to hold my attention, uh, it usually does. But yeah, if I've tried listening to audiobooks that are just uh, a story, and yeah, I. I get lost sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, your listeners aren't that interested in this. No, I, I, I think this is since we we normally do our know everybody segment around this time. This has been a from what I consider a very extended version of know everybody. Um, okay. Move right into show notes real quick. First up, a uh, new commentary track. By the time you hear this recording, our latest commentary track for the Iron Giant will have dropped onto iTunes and everywhere you can find our show. Uh, that was a lot of fun to record. Myself, Brandon Peters, and Yancy Yancy Burns. We all. Uh, talked all about the iron giant and other animated relevance type uh tangents and what have you a lot of things about brad bird and miyazaki so we 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 got into it it was it was a good good track to kind of focus a lot of minds on hand-drawn animation what have you so that's that was a fun one um what else Uh, speaking of itunes itunes views ratings good to get those if you want to help out our show you can log into itunes you can search for out now there and a name you can write us a little review and give us a, a couple star ratings that'd be that'd be great that'd be help us help us out and uh, let's see, uh, Summer Gamble, we are approaching the end of the summer here. It's just a matter of which films make money at this point in the weeks leading up to the end of August. Um, by that time, we will go over who won our gamble, where we tried to predict what the top 10 highest grossing films of the summer are. I, <laughs> Abe's not here to defend himself, but I know that me and Scott Mendelson, friend of the show, are doing pretty well based off Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, most likely coming in 10th place, which is exactly where we have it. That's going to get us a lot of points. But, uh, yeah, um, nothing huge open this weekend as far as anything that's going to potentially make, like, $150 million in the next three weeks. But uh, Right. 
Hobbs and Shaw is certainly a it's a it's a driving factor in what's going to happen by the end here, in terms of how much money it ends up making. Um, I'm not I'm not at all surprised by the success of The Lion King. I'm just mm-hmm. very bummed about it. I yeah. really wish I really wish that everybody had just rejected it, but you know it's a familiar property and people are going to see it and like it was it's tailor made for people our age or maybe a little bit older who now have kids and they're like oh i watched the lion king when i was a kid and now i'm going to show this version to you and yeah my, it's uh my curiosity is i don't like, i don't mm-hmm. i don't think about box office that often um because Unless uh, somebody is is touting like, oh, this is the highest grossing movie ever made when you don't adjust for inflation. Um, aside from that, like people tend not to think that much about box office in the long run. Oh, yeah. Just the Internet. Um, yeah. As far as like, Twitter <laughs> goes and bragging rights for movies that they have no investment in. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah especially when most of these movies are owned by the same company. And yet they're still very happy about like which one's on top. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is, I mean, yeah, as far as parents that are around our age that have kids now and take it to the Lion King, I keep wondering, because it's making all of this money. Are there parents that are like, we need to keep seeing this? Because, yeah, sure, the one time they see it and they're like, okay, that was yeah. either tolerable or they really enjoyed it or it seems less likely compared to critics. But they're like, well, that was a waste of time. But it's making so much money. So it's like, are there repeat visits? Are they like, can't stop seeing this? Like, I need to keep going. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, of course, I barely made it through one viewing, um, so obviously I wouldn't see it again. But, I mean, kids do demand to see something again. Uh, and so maybe this is a movie – and again, because I, I view the film as uh, wholly lacking in imagination, I can't imagine a kid wanting to return to it over and over again. But uh, they might. So I suppose, yeah. yeah I just – I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago as the movie continued making money. I just keep thinking all of this money has been spent to make this movie and it's making all this money. And the most regard that I'm going to have for it is it exists. So it's like, I just, yeah, I, I get curious, like where the future is with these Disney remakes when we come 20 years later and like, remember when John Favreau made a Lion King movie and what's his name made um, Beauty and the Beast. It's like, yeah, this happened. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what the regard's supposed to be later on. But. That, that's, that is actually a very good thought, is that, I mean, they're making a lot of money right now, but is anybody, are? it's not merely will anybody remember them. People will, but will they will they wind up going the way of like smell-o-vision, where people think back and like, hey, can you remember that time? Like, they'll be, I think they'll, they could, his, several years from now, maybe decades from now, uh, be viewed as just an odd novelty. Um, probably as people are talking about uh, the evolution of CGI, mm-hmm. uh, people will be like, yes, uh, there was a time when uh, uh, audiences and studios were so enamored with CGI that they uh, wanted to see how far they could push it as far as recreating reality. And so they did this, uh, this uh, at these adaptations of, of hand-drawn animated uh, animated films um so it's and of course i don't like to predict things like that who knows maybe the films will be beloved masterpieces except i can't imagine that being the case yeah it's a matter of like i don't think like the disney vault's gonna open and these disney remakes are gonna come out it's like oh my god finally i can finally get the copy of john favreau's lion king again like i'm right. waiting for the new z-ray <laughs> release of it this is 20 2054 of course sure when z-ray is the thing and, um, so. 
But uh, all right, <laughs> let's, let's move forward. Okay. <laughs> um, let's do a bit of a downbeat um, as far as recent news that occurred. Um, just, yeah. Just yesterday, uh, it was reported that Peter Fonda has passed away. The, uh, the famous actor, son of Henry Fonda, brother of Jane Fonda, who is known in his own right as being a kind of a counterculture figure in the Hollywood system. Yeah. Any any thoughts on uh, on Peter Fonda in, in general? I know we're both like among other things, we're both big fans of The Limey, which he was of course, yes. a, a major supporting role in. Uh, yeah, I mean, I my exposure to him is is relatively limited, except for a few key movies, obviously Easy Rider, um, but uh, and then his his. Best actor nomination for Yuli's Gold is one that I think is well deserved. I I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, I've seen, I, I saw it once when my dad rented from a blockbuster when sure. it came out, and so it's been a long time, and it's always been one that I've wanted to revisit seeing, especially after seeing what is it? Ben is back last year, which I know has similar. It, rem- plot it reminded elements. me a lot of that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, Yuli's Gold. It's a film that I that yes, I knew that he was nominated, and so I rented it myself. Um, and it was 97, but it was probably 98. So I was, you know, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a, a very specific association with Yulis Gold. Uh, and I'll talk about his amazing performance in a moment. But uh, I was, let's see, yeah, I was a high school student. And I did not care about most things in high school, but I was really getting into movies. And I have, and so I was blowing off like a lot of math assignments. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I have a very specific memory of of uh, sitting and watching Julie's Gold in our unfinished basement, and then I heard uh, my mom just like I don't know, just uh, very angrily come down the stairs to the basement, and she's like, "I just got off the phone with your math teacher, uh, and he says that you have skipped like the last four assignments," uh, and she's like, "She goes, and you know, and you don't even care, you're just here watching movies, and." And so then you know, it's like, all right. So I turned it off and I had to, and I went and worked on some assignments and stuff. And then I turned it back on. But in retrospect, I feel like it's so perfect that a, I mean, obviously a parent's going to get upset if their kid is not doing what they're supposed to do in school. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like, yes, your 15 year old is not doing math because he wants to watch Yuli's Gold. <laughs> you know, maybe. Obviously, like it wasn't, I wasn't in a film class, so it's it was just for my own uh, my own enjoyment. But maybe let's not be so angry at that. It's not as though I'm watching. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know. It would be watching the Wedding Singer for the 18th time or something like that. Uh, and so I, I always associate Yuli's Gold as as like, yeah, that's the film I was watching when I got in tr- like really officially in trouble for not doing my schoolwork. Hmm. Um, and and I feel like that's indicative of a. I feel like that's sort of my life in microcosm now that I think about it. Anyway, um, okay, that's neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, Yuli's Gold is is a a solid film with a really great performance and one that I don't think I expected from Peter Fonda, having seen like Easy Rider and mm-hmm. some other sort of hippie roles that he had played. Um, and so the idea of him giving this very quiet, nuanced, just the the way he just sits, he it's like he, he is almost zen-like but also overwhelmed with with regret um he does seem to have a pretty a pretty solid interpretation of the world but what i like is that he doesn't have it all figured out um he's a guy who would be content to just live life in obscurity uh 
and he's also aware of the the various ways that uh, life has kind of screwed him over um and the ways that he is has screwed other people over including family members and it's just a it's just such a lovely performance um and i was very happy that he was able to do that because even as much as i adore the limey and i think he's great in it um that character um is very much is very much peter fonda like it is rooted in like he's playing this guy named terry valentine who's a, a, a this this counterculture icon mm-hmm. himself like just like peter fonda and while i think he does a really marvelous job um making the character fairly likable um while also undeniably douchey um something like yuli's gold to me it's going back to easy rider you know uh to me yuli's gold is sort of like uh when nicholson did uh, about schmidt yeah you know really trying yeah really trying to strip himself of like the charm and charisma that people came to know him uh, associate with him and so um but yeah peter fonda was just uh and in interviews and in commentaries he always just seemed like a very humble guy uh who at no point i think uh if anything he might have been ashamed of being a fonda um because well, maybe I, know, people... I know he was aware he never wanted to really he didn't want the spotlight in the same way his daughter his father had or that, that yeah. jane fonda has he was he was more reclusive not that he was open unopen to you know being a friendly person but he certainly didn't yeah. share the same kind of well that, that that leads to my sort of question to you and that will get to my thoughts on peter fonda as a whole because i like you i've seen some of like the key films that he's been involved with sure. i'm certainly not a an expert on the, the man's film filmography but do, do you consider him like a leading man like if you think of P- peter fonda i mean certainly not for the last several decades sure yeah um but uh i think even i, I think he, he is the type of, you know what this this could sound mean but i don't mean for it to um he was a leading he could be a leading man in a very specific context and that context was the counterculture mm-hmm. um where a leading man doesn't have to be conventionally attractive because i think peter fonda's would not i don't think anybody would say he had movie star looks but he had he had a quality to him that i think could make him a leading man and when he was younger he was in certain types of movies um and then as he grew older it was more of a I'm not sure if I would say character actor, but certainly wound up just playing supporting roles. And that's, um, that's what I thought, like, or, or that's kind of this regard where I remember specifically seeing 310 to Yuma, the yeah. uh, James Mangold remake, which I adore. I think that movie's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I like the original very much as well. I was just very impressed by just not only how good of a remake it was, but just how good of a, a modern Western it is. But Peter Fonda shows yeah. up in a supporting role as a, as a, as was this? He's like Byron, Byron McElroy. And he's playing a, yeah. um, uh, Pinkerton agent and I remember thinking why is Peter like this is a big movie with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale as leads why is Peter Fonda in this like random supporting role who even like spoilers for 310 but dies off fairly early on yeah I, I found that to be interesting and then I think well what do I think of Peter Fonda like I because I at that point I've seen the limey I'm aware of who he is on a general sense and I'm thinking well I guess he doesn't really star in many especially not now and like, yeah. there's a bit of naivety to me at that point in 2007, where I'm like, is, if they're big, they should be leading actors. That's what it is. But oh, <laughs> interesting, like, yeah. But then I'm thinking, well, I guess he's older. Like, it's just this weird coming to realization that, yeah. well, not everybody's gonna, I guess, lead movies all the time, and and that's kind of especially going... because by that time, you know, I mean, well, I mean, just in general, it's pretty rare for anybody over a certain age sure. to be a lead, mostly because 
you don't find a lot of leads that are over 50. Mm-hmm. Unless they're like just Hollywood royalty or, you know, or, right, directing yeah. their own, or if they're Eastwood and he's directing his own movies. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. And, and honestly, like, I mean, I guess Tom Cruise is over 50, but he's not doing over 50 things uh, sure. in his movies. You know, well, he, you, you um, know that's at that, that point. And that goes with a lot. I mean, look at Hobbs and like Jason Statham's over 50 at this point. Like there, there's a yeah. brand that's associated with them at this point. Um, right. Which, you know, there's an expectation of what kinds of movies they do. And certainly they're placed in a certain type of role or what have you. And obviously fandom is a, yeah. you know, a big part of that as well. Um, I will tell a story that, uh, so the movie, the hired hand. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my co-host David, uh, he watched it for the first time, uh, when we were living together. Uh, and then he watched the commentary. This, the, the story is not actually about the film itself. It's about the commentary. Okay. And so, uh, he told me about it and then I went back and listened to it and it's delightful. Um, and, uh, in it, uh, Peter Fonda is, there's a scene where he's naked. Um, and Peter Fonda does commentary and he goes, so when that scene comes up, he goes, there I am, bare-assed, but not embarrassed. <laughs> and it's just like, that's about right. Like, it's it's this weird combination uh, of like sort of zen-like hippie wisdom and almost an old west calm to him and you put them together and i realized that he wasn't that all the time like he played the this over the top villain and uh in uh ghost rider and that sort of thing mm-hmm. but when he was really tuned into to the type of care the type of actor he was uh it was it was a very it was sort of a calming but occasionally menacing presence yeah for sure i mean uh, what race with the devil is another one that's uh which I didn't see. He's largely associated with. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, R.I.P. to Peter Fonda, of course. He, yeah. You know, regardless of his leading man status in the later years of his life, he's certainly a Hollywood legend. And, you know, many people have already, <laughs> that certainly knew him and have more to say, certainly have already made the well wishes. But it's nice to kind of reflect a Indeed. bit on, on a, you know, an icon uh, from, from his time. With all that in mind, let's uh, let's move into it. Let's get to our, let's get to our main review for okay. Blinded by the Light. Bruce is the direct line to all that's true in this shitty world. Seriously, what does he know about our world? You should be listening to our music before you start getting confused and hating yourself. I listen to everything. I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt, everything I've ever wanted. My poems, they're not brilliant, but they're mine. You think that this man sings for people like us? But he talks to me. All right, that should have been some of the trailer for Blinded by the Light. Inspired by the life of English journalist Safraz Mazur, uh, the film follows Javed Khan, a young man of Pakistani descent living in 1987 Thatcherite Britain. He faces both racism and other residents of, from other residents of his area, as well as the pressures from his father to study and get a good job to help provide for his family. Javed is a dreamer, though. He writes poetry every day, and when one of his fellow classmates hands him a couple of Bruce Springsteen tapes, Javed suddenly finds even more inspiration as he believes the boss gets exactly who he is. Tyler, yes. as we get into the thoughts on the film, are you a Bruce Springsteen fan? No. No, as in, like, 
just you don't listen to him or just are you, are you actively against Bruce Springsteen? It's not that I'm against uh, and I, I can recognize the quality of what he's doing. But for some reason, it has uh, I've I've listened to a lot of his music and it has never grabbed me. I can appreciate his lyrics, but just there's something about the way he puts a song together that just uh, hits my ear the wrong way. And yep. so mm-hmm. that's and, and I don't hold I definitely uh, in general, I don't hold anybody's musical taste again because i have no idea why that like the stuff I do. um so and i i know people that my friend kevin porter uh who did the gilmore girls uh podcast sorry gilmore guys podcast uh he's a huge bruce springsteen fan i texted him immediately after seeing the film uh he's seen him dozens of times in concert like he just absolutely loves him and i i appreciate that level of passion but i've never had it for him I, I'm not too far off from you where like I, I, I get him being popular. I'm, there's a, there's something to him that obviously connects with a lot of people. There are certain songs I do certainly like, but I've never been one to be like this Bruce Springsteen is something I, I got to keep listening to, uh, two things to go with that. My dad is a huge Bruce Springsteen fan and mm-hmm. he was very delighted by this film. He very much enjoyed it. Um, but also I bought him Bruce Springsteen's latest album for Father's Day, which is, I guess, a concept album. And I listened to it as well, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Like, I was very happy to kind of listen to it. It was very easy to kind of relax to. It's not something I've been like, I can't stop playing it, but I was like, it was pretty good. What's what's the uh, concept behind the album? I'm not sure exactly. I just, I'm aware that that's kind of what he was going for. Got Um, it. And I haven't, I haven't sat to like really dissect the lyrics enough to, to have more to say on that. I'm just saying that. As far as his, you know, he's been around for several decades now, and he's still putting it out. And from this latest one that I've heard, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, um, with all that said, though, what did you think of the film Blinded by the Light? Uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, I didn't necessarily love it, but there are things I love about it. Um, and I think what I what I like about I'm glad that you asked first whether or not I was a, a Springsteen fan. I don't think you need to be in order to enjoy the movie mm-hmm. because I think what the film gets a hundred percent right um, is the passion that art and really anything, any kind of seemingly uh, peripheral uh, activity, um, the the impact that that can have and the passion that that can inspire in a person um, because while I do, while I do not respond to Bruce Springsteen that way, there are plenty of other things that I have responded to that way. And, and what I, and so something that David and I talk about a lot on the podcast is that counterintuitive though it may seem, the more specific uh, a film is in its story, the more universal it can be. Whereas if you try to be sort of broad and generic, uh, it actually, become less relatable. And this is a movie that's clearly very specific about its subjects, uh, love of this thing. And while I can't, and I think it does a good job of explaining why it appeals to him. Um, and while I can't relate to that specific, like I can relate to the emotional specifics of how he's responding to this and feeling like he's run across a, you know, these works of art and this artist specifically to feel that he feels like, like, this is someone who gets it. This is someone who speaks very directly to me. I, and I'm sure you and anybody who's artistically minded, uh, whether it be in regards to film or music or literature, or whatever, um, 
it has probably happened multiple times with certain filmmakers in certain movies. Um, and I, where you just watch it and you suddenly feel this elation. Um, even if, uh, even if the work of art is not meant to be inspiring, it's just, you feel like you have run across a kindred, a kindred spirit. And that's how this, you know, English kid, uh, with Pakistani heritage, uh, can relate to this, New Jersey songwriter, you know, uh, they don't really have that much in common and yet they are clearly kindred spirits in a way. And so I think the film captures that and that is not necessarily an easy thing, uh, to capture. Um, and so for that reason, along with some of the, the way the music is included and certain character things, um, that's, that's why I really uh, appreciated it. I mean, that's pretty much encapsulates my thoughts on where the enthusiasm I have for this film comes from. I mean, it, it, there are there are there are things to point out that we'll get to as far as what holds it back from me becoming some kind of like, you know, instant classic, a term that I'm not you know generally using anyway. But I mean, the 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 major factor here is do we get that this this kid likes this thing and does that thing mean something to us? And it's and it comes in regardless to what that thing is. That said, you know, I. I commented last week on um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark about how that film was interesting to me because it chose 1968 as a time period as opposed to cashing in on 80s mm -hmm. nostalgia, which is what a lot of movies have, and TV shows and streaming series have done. I have to name all these different things have done in recent years, um, where this film, it starts up, and here we are. It's just like blasting me with all these 80s references and like showing yeah. me all this, specifically uh, England, where where Thatcher is like, it's like it's just showing me a lot of a barrage of imagery that very much conveys yeah. a very specific time period, but still certainly very 80s. Yet it didn't bother me here. Uh, it, it, it felt, it, I mean, that's the purpose of the story. And like, it's not that I'm against 80s nostalgia. It's just like there's been so much of it. But when you handle it in a certain way, it's not something I can... I, I don't need to be apprehensive against it. And that's what I got here. I got a film that embraced what it was trying to do and did so did so so earnestly that I was easily able to get behind the main character's plight and what he would what what kind of drama he was dealing with with his family. Um, that really made it, it made me appreciate how thin of a plot it is, yet how much I could still like still like get into it. Like there's not a lot that happens here as far as major turmoil in the same way that you'd see in like a big awards bait drama or obviously a blockbuster of some kind like there's no major antagonist that we have to deal with there's right. there's no major i mean there there is a speech i suppose but there's no like the character was able to cross this level of adversity and like you know achieve something you you know extraordinary it's more of it's just a very human story even the notion of like racism that he has to deal with in his town it's not like there's one key racist that he's like you know what never mind guy i'm getting over you like it's just more of like i just find out out he just um uh, javid just figures out how to kind of get around that stuff and yeah. i i like the simple i like that level of simplicity i like that we can just kind of steer away from uh, as i said something kind of more something bigger in term and and just more settle on a story about a kid dealing with where he wants to go in life and how that how that adds to his family and even the fact that he now is aware that there are places he can go in life mm -hmm. um because up to that point he just he just feels a certain longing but he doesn't even really know what he's longing for he's just longing for something different um as a result just feels very much like an outsider and then essentially hears this music and that 
it's not as though uh, Bruce Springsteen has a song that says, hey, you should go to Manchester. Um, it's but there is just the again, the fact that there's a kindred spirit out there and it's encouraging him in many ways to work hard and not settle and not let other people dictate to you how what your life is going to be. You know, uh, it's not enough to just back. It's not enough to just back away from something. And he is backing away from his family and and his classmates and that sort of thing. Eventually, you have to you have to actively go in a different direction if if you're going to really make a change in your life. And so uh, this is a character who's been backing away from things, but not towards anything in particular. And so uh, he suddenly experiences that. And I think that's why. yeah, the use of 80s fashions and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it's oh, it, it seems over the top, but it was an over the top time for fashion, so I mean, I'm, comes I'm with okay the with it. And I mean, it, yeah, it bring it brings a it brings a level of life to a, especially a film set in Luton, England, where it's right. pretty drab if you're not dealing with costumes and hairstyles and what have you. And I think it's and we are also dealing with music. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got this DJ, we've got Javed's friend who's in a band. They do need to be just by the nature of what they're doing, need to be more tuned into what is hip and what is now, uh, not just with the music that they like uh, and the music they play, but also the way they look. They need to be and the, and the DJ, even the school DJ even says it. He says this is what people are listening to right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't necessarily bother me. And I like that at no point. Oh, uh, before I get to that. um and that's the thing is the more you emphasize that and maybe overemphasize that, the the clearer the distinction is made uh, between Javed and these other characters. You know, sure. we see that they're very bright colors and, and over the top fashion sense. Um, and so he chooses this slightly more muted um, denim and flannel type thing. Uh, and it really differentiates him from the rest of his uh, the rest of the the world of the time um but uh where i think the type of 80s nostalgia although i don't think that actually that word applies to what i'm about to say where it starts to bother me is when the the filmmakers um cop a certain attitude you know uh we know now that bruce springsteen is more timeless than debbie gibson sure we we know that mm-hmm. At the time, though, Bruce Springsteen was seen as an artist largely irrelevant to an entire generation, whereas Debbie Gibson was not. And so the way that the DJ talks about um, the the current music and the way adults talk about the current music, um, it just feels like it's it's done with that kind of very safe and very condescending hindsight. We have no idea. Uh, who's going to be what artists are going to be remembered? Um, it's easy for us as adults to look at what uh, what kids these days are listening to and say like that's not going to last. And we might be right, but we don't actually know. And so it always bothers me when somebody looks back at the past in their movies and uses it as an opportunity to get a what I think is a very cheap laugh uh, from like because it's really just a, a laugh of recognition. Um, a laugh that yeah, oh I mean, we moved past that you know I mean, whether it be I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying as far as that goes at the same time i think for a film like this it's there there are some perhaps easy laughs but it's not like it's not like one of these spoof movies or something where it's just calling attention to a thing and asking you to laugh at it i, I do think there's 
there's there's I don't think that that level of scrutiny really takes me out of the picture, I guess, for me sort of specifically. No, not necessarily. It's that's the thing is because the film is so sincere. And that's one thing that I actually like is that Javed, again, this goes back to the the arc of being someone who encounters an artist and a work of art that they really respond to is when you're young you kind of get tunnel vision and you see this thing and you love it and you can't imagine how anyone else could like something else or not like this. And what I do like is that over the course of the film, um, he does adopt that attitude and then quickly abandons it and realizes that, Oh, everybody has their thing. Sure. This was mine. And so I think that I I really like that. Um, but, uh, but in that, yeah, uh, it's, the film is the one, not Java. The film is the one uh, adopting that kind of superior attitude. It's it's Billy Zane Titanic talking about Picasso. Um, Fair enough. Where it's just, just like, well, like why do we even is, need this? I don't think the film is smug about it. I guess that's the dif- the difference. Uh, I think it's a me. little bit smug about it, but it's also a very brief moment. So it's not as though the the yeah. film overall is smug. Speaking about the music incorporated into the film, I, sh- I should note. Um, as as mentioned, the this the film is based off loosely based off the life story of Sarfraz Manzor, who has is a devoted Bruce Springsteen fan. He's been to his mm-hmm. over 150 uh, Boss concerts, um, and in being a co-writer on the script, uh, they sent it to Bruce Springsteen, and he loved it, and he approved as far as having his music involved in the film, which is obviously key to making a movie like this to begin with. Um, so you have you hear like 17 different Bruce Springsteen tracks over the course of this yeah. movie. Um, with that in mind. Having asked you if you're a fan of Bruce Springsteen's music, did you like hearing the songs incorporated into the film or how yeah. they kind of emerged? Yeah. Um, something that I find myself uh, quoting fairly often um, is that is Roger Ebert's uh, review of Dead Poet Society. And I think I'm thinking about it because I'm now a teacher. Um, and one of the things that he had a problem with is that he was basically sort of extrapolating what these students are going to do once this class is over. And he said, he goes, I'm pretty sure that when they think back on it, they're going to love the teacher far more than the poetry. And while it's, uh, while obviously we all have our favorite teachers, usually the teachers uh, inspire or engender in us a real love for that thing. Like the emphasis is on that thing. Um, and they get us thinking about it in a different way. Uh, and so along those lines, this film, obviously it had to, it, it could, it wouldn't be enough to just have Javid's story. Uh, and then he, we see him hearing Bruce Springsteen, but we're not, we're not really celebrating the work itself. You know, if we, the, the more the film emphasizes the specific songs, the more we're going to understand what job is dealing with. Like, um, obviously his story is why we're watching it. This isn't a Bruce Springsteen biopic. Um, but we do need to get a real sense of this thing that is inspiring him. And so when we see the lyrics on the screen, when we see these sequences that aren't officially fantasy sequences, but they might as well be of, dancing to uh, down the streets to his uh to bruce springsteen's music yeah, um not, i think it's not that, quite magical realism but there certainly is a kind right. of music video quality that the film's trying to evoke which i yeah it's but it does have a, a magical realism quality to it where it's just like it's not yeah it's not quite reality uh but it's not it's not overly indicated to us that it's pure fantasy either mm-hmm. like it's inside the character's head it is just this 
wonderful celebration of this thing. And so, uh, you know, the, the film, I think the more it features those songs and the different ways in which it features them, um, I think really does a service to Bruce Springsteen and in doing so to Javid as well. Whereas if they had just gone a little bit generic with it, or if they had put, if they'd pulled back a little bit, uh, I think it would have, uh, been a disservice to both. Yeah. Cause it doesn't feel like a jukebox musical, which we've seen right. some popularity in with Bohemian Rhapsody and to a less, to some extent, Rocket Man, although I like that film more. Um, but the, the way they apply the songs, like, yes, it does feel specific to what's taking place, but it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like it's just like, well, here's the most obvious it's not suicide squad it's not throwing like the most obvious right. track on top of it to like really emphasize you know the the, the barest of minimum when it comes to the emotional state somebody's in and yeah. taking that from you and i who are both as we said not huge Bruce springsteen fans at least specifically like we don't connect to the music in the same way i i i think both the film is successful in making me well I'm, I'm hearing songs that i've heard bits and pieces of or i've heard and i've heard I'm, they're recognizable i've heard recognizable songs right. before because there are a lot of them are some of his major singles some of them aren't um and in that regard the way it's presented to me i like i like i like seeing what the film's trying to do as far as showing me why this why javid is so in tune with what's going on here at the same time i can imagine real bruce springsteen fans are eating this up like it's, oh sure it's a mix of like the both they're getting to see this story where i presume it like you talk about tunnel vision it's hard for me not to think that somebody wouldn't at least see the spirit of this movie even if they don't like it overall yeah. it'd be hard for me to picture someone being like this is absolute garbage um but with that in mind bruce springsteen fans i think will just get a huge kick out of seeing this story unfold and getting to have all of the, all of this music and the and having it be incorporated in such a way where bruce springsteen himself like he, what he just did, like a whole one-man show thing that's on Netflix right now that you can watch. Like he's mm -hmm. certainly a, a storyteller in his own right, and so having, you know, someone that's a songwriter that has a lot of different thoughts on things and tries to express them, having that connect in some way to another person's story, I think there's there, there's a lot of interesting things you can get out of that if you're one that's already very familiar with what he has to offer as an artist. Yeah. So we've talked we've talked about a lot of what we liked about the film so far, and I know there's a yeah. key thing that I'm I'm pretty sure you're probably the same with as far as where the film comes out short, and I think it's in the supporting characters. There yeah. are a number. Okay, so <laughs> I figured as much. Um, there are a number of people here that are you know have a role in this film, and yet I think the film, not that it necessarily needs to give them fully fleshed out characters because we're telling one single story, but I do think there's a missed opportunity to kind of give me more of some of these people that certainly play a big role in Javed's life. I wouldn't count among them uh, Malik, who is played by. Kolvinder Gur, um, he play, he's he's uh, Javed's father in this film. I think he gets a lot to do, but I do think the the rest of his family, along with at least two of his friends that are supposed to be major parts of his life, have next to nothing to really offer this movie, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, uh, I feel like there is a there is a lead character, there's a supporting character, and then there are tertiary characters. Mm -hmm. The lead is Javed. The supporting is his father, and then everybody else is just kind of around, including his mother and his girlfriend uh, and his best friend um, and the guy who introduces him to Bruce Springsteen. Like these are on paper. These are key characters. And yet they, I mean, there's just nothing. There's nothing there. I, it, it really astonishes me to think about. We, um, we get more depth out of a neighbor character that lives next to Java than we do about the character that introduces, introduces him to Bruce Springsteen, who's with yeah. him for a good majority of the film. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would have liked – I mean I understand that – yeah, we are focusing on one lead character. But at the same time, uh, the guy that introduces him uh, is a Sikh. So he obviously is dealing with racism. Who's to, and, and I would assume that he is feeling maybe the same things about the music that uh, Javid is. But at the same time, I have no idea. I don't know why he likes Bruce Springsteen. And he's not the lead, so we don't need to go into that much detail. But at the same time, this is a guy who – basically kicks everything off mm -hmm. and then becomes one of Javid's good friends, uh, deals with some of the same bigotry that he does. And then when he goes, when Javid goes to New Jersey, this friend comes along with him. And I'm just like, this, this character is almost Tyler Durden insofar as <laughs> yeah. he, he seems like he doesn't actually exist in this reality. He exists solely to be there for Javid. And that is it. Yeah, we even get a picture of him at the end of the movie. The real yeah. Roops, Roops is the character's name. He's played by Aaron Figura in this film. Uh, we get a picture of so like this character, he's there. Like there's a there's, yeah. there's someone there's someone that exists that's this person, but there's he has no agency other than dude, you got to listen to Brooke Springsteen and dude, did you hear that new Springsteen out? Like it's there's nothing going on with this person, which is like there is, well. <laughs> and that's not to that's not to put it on the actor. I think he does a a, a fine enough job. I think part um, of the, part of what we're commenting on is because when he's on screen, he does seem to have a, a he does bring life to the film. Like there is something there. Where I'm like, it would be nice to know more about this character. And then the character of Matt, uh, his childhood friend, and and one of the first things that happens, like the very first scene, is Javid and Matt as children. Uh, looking out at the people going into and out of London, uh, and then they they like yell out, uh, "We're going to be friends our, uh, forever!" And it's like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's probably uh, that's foreshadowing that that is maybe not going to happen." But that's that's the opening scene of a movie about friendship. Mm -hmm. This movie is not about that. No. And Matt is such. I get a stronger sense of who he is, because um, we get to we get to visit with him more, and we also meet his father, played by Rob Brydon from yeah. the trip, which was a nice delight to see. I think in a, a small supporting role, it was. Uh, but um, there, but yeah, we he just kind of enters the film and then's gone for good portions of the time, and then comes right. back, and then they're like in a fight for some reason at one point. It's like. Well, who is this? Like, he likes synth music. That's what I know. Like, and he... Yeah. And and there's a moment where he says that, you know, your dad picks on you just like my dad picks on mine. I'm like, that feels like something willing, that I'd like to explore. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you could drop the character of Matt and the movie would be the same. Mm -hmm. Like, exactly the same. To such an extent, he's gone for so many – when a character has gone for that long and and – People aren't, you know, and people aren't commenting on it or it's not a plot point, um, then they're probably not that necessary. And I'm sure there was an an actual Matt type person in the real story. But, yeah, it's here. Like anytime he would come on screen, I always thought, oh, yeah, I forgot he existed. Um, and I think the movie did, too. Uh, it's, the movie it is. I'll say the movie is almost two hours. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, and this is just pure speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are more scenes that maybe have been taken out just to kind of keep the film focused, but it still does a disservice to having what seems like a key character on screen. And then, you know, he just, he's literally gone for chunks of the movie. What a character that the movie insists is a key character, but mm -hmm. then does nothing to back it up. Sure. Um, and it just, I, I was, Again, this is a movie that I really, really like, really responded to, but I was really, for lack of a better word, shocked at how 
not poorly developed, how undeveloped almost completely many of these characters are. There's a moment where Javid is talking with his sister and discovers that, oh, she sneaks away from school or whatever it is and, and goes to these clubs and dances and that's and, and dancing is clearly her thing. And from a thematic standpoint, I understand why we need to see that and, and the what it awakens in, uh, in Javid and the realizations that he has as a result. That I get, but his sister's a non-entity until that moment and then once the moment is over, she goes back to being a non-entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just happens constantly it's that you know there's a term that i use on battleship pretension and i don't think it necessarily applies here but it's it's not far off which is um uh aaron brockovich syndrome where we have a lead there brockovich yeah we have a lead and everybody knows all the characters seem to know that they're supporting characters Mm -hmm. in a movie and so like the and i'll come back to the character of rubes like it is crazy to spend so much time with a non-character who on paper is very important and yet I don't know him and he seems to be there solely to get Javid where he needs to go, provide support as needed, and that's it. Like as though he has no life of his own, um, which is why, again, he just feels like he's almost a, a, a complete figment of Javid's imagination. Um, and so – and the, but aside – the father, that's different. And I do think that the the actress who plays the mother, she brings enough weight yes. not like throughout the movie that she definitely feels different than some of these other characters. Um, and the fact that other characters are, are referencing her um, as, well, she's the one that has to do the work. Now, the father's been laid off. She seems like an actual character. She's not quite on the level of the father. But she's she's definitely different than Matt and Roops and that sort of thing. Well, in talking about this film, as far as where you would kind of pin it, I mean, obviously it's a film of it's it's a coming of age story to an extent, but it's also, in my mind, it is a film about family. It might not be the most developed family compared to other movies that are very purely about family and what the relations right. are, what the dynamics are. But I do think the film is very much in support of showing what Javid is in this family and how mm-hmm. the others are around him. As you mentioned, the sister, there's two sisters. One's getting married in this film, the other's younger. Um, they don't get nearly as much development. But we are watching the this specific clan deal with what's taking place in London at this time, or in, sorry, in Luton at this time, and how they're responding to it. And so they're they're all grappling with the various race and xenophobic things that are going on here, but as well as how they're going to contend with the dying economy that's taking place at this point. I mean, you mentioned Malik's father, he gets laid off early on in this film. Sorry, Javid's father, Malik, he gets laid off early on in this film. And a lot of the movie revolves around how the family's going to support themselves. And Javid's struggle to both be in in school, pretending to be studying for one thing, uh, while still, you know, saying another and wanting to be a writer and making money, but not knowing it, what to do with it exactly. Like, there's a lot of things going on there that kind of they, they give Malk a lot to do. And yeah. I, I liked this character a lot. I like seeing his father and his both because he's quite funny, um, but mm-hmm. also I think that funny adds to the pathos of the film and of of, of that certain dynamic as far as what he wants for his family, how he's been trying to provide and what potential disappointment he sees until possibly seeing a light uh, towards the end. Yeah. I think it is a very well-developed character because, you know, you said early on that there is no clear villain in the film. And I feel like a lesser movie would have cast him as the villain. Mm -hmm. Um, But clearly this is a guy who's just 
trying to keep his head above water, trying to take care of his family while also adhering to certain traditions and certain ideas. Um, and it's, you know, it, it can't be easy, uh, to when dealing with a, a kid that is not rebellious in, in an aggressive way, but just a, a kid that is just doing his own thing when the father is really just trying to keep the family together. And then to me, that scene where, where Javed buys the Springsteen tickets mm-hmm. And the father's like, we are scraping by and you had money that you spent on this frivolous thing. And it's weird because I absolutely see where Javid is coming from. I think I'm more inclined to be on his side, but I also absolutely see where the father is coming from. Yeah. You know, and so I think that is key because if you just made I think that if you just made the father this oppressive villain, um, Honestly, I think it could be easy to extrapolate like, oh, is the is the is the director commenting on the the culture that these characters are coming from? You know, no, like they may she makes it very specific to this character and the way he runs his family. Um, And and I like that quite a bit. So it's it's a and it's a it's a great performance. Like you said, he's he's allowed to be funny. He's allowed to have rage. He's allowed to cry. It is a fully developed character. He's not a co-lead, but he's, I mean, I come away from the movie as far as characters come, come away for, uh, thinking about job and maybe even more about his father. Cause I think his father might be a slightly more dynamic character. Sure. And there's certainly a lot of history too. That's explored just in dialogue as far as him leaving Pakistan to come to England to provide yeah. for his, I mean, there's a lot going on there, which again, I think because the character has a lot of comedy that he, he's a beautiful lot of comedy that makes it that makes it he's both more human that way but also it makes it more it's more pal- palatable you, can, you yeah. can accept that there's a person that's trying to stop our lead character from progressing because he has a way of doing things but also you still like the guy so yeah like, which is again why he's not a pure antagonist for the film um noting the the director uh, uh grinder chatter uh, she I, I think of benefit not that not that a a I mean she's of Indian descent. Not mm-hmm. of not that a you know quote unquote a white director or someone else just that's not kind of imbued in similar territory. Not that they they're incapable of being able to make a film that addresses the things that a, a Pakistani family would be suffering through during this time. But I do think there is a you know there's a lot of benefit from having somebody that's that has a kind of a, a, a similar alignment to certain struggles that these characters are facing that's making this story where you could have something that's a bit more over the top of how the racism is handled or makes it a little more pat as far as how things are resolved here you have a story that doesn't need to it doesn't overemphasize the fact that there are terrible things happening and swastikas being painted on walls and stuff but it doesn't right. it doesn't do a, a, a disservice to that factor either which it just make it just makes it a a, a a fact of their life. And what I, what I really like is that, um, you know, Javed and his, and his family, they're not looking to make a big statement. They're not looking to stand against, against racism and bigotry. They're just trying to live their lives. And sometimes they're there. That might look like bravery. And other times it just looks like keeping your head down and, and keeping quiet, which is not a thing that I necessarily recommend, but I do like it. There, there could have been temptation to really play play that aspect of the thing up uh, and then make that what the film is about. Um, and one could say that that is a 
reasonable um, or at least a, an understandable goal. Uh, but again, I think it just adds to the overall specificity of Javed's situation. I mean, he's just, it's not merely that he is in sort of a working class town and he's not that, he's a more creative type. It's not merely that he is uh, in a family that's very traditional in certain ways and he's not. Um, it is also that even within those already um, not oppressive, but restricting confines, mm -hmm. there are also a group of people that don't care at all about his poetry. They don't care at all about the money his dad makes. They, the only thing they care about is what he looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, he, you know, he can stop writing poetry. He can stop listening to Bruce Springsteen. He can't stop looking how he looks. And so it just, just the film is, is really focusing on just how on the margins of everything Javid is. Uh, including his own family and including a society that is that has a subculture that's actively hostile towards him, which and which, which is done without being oppressive, because we need to emphasize right. this movie is a lot of fun. Like, there's yeah, a, there is a lot of fun to be had in this. I think it starts off a little bit slow, but it does like it does ramp up. I mean, that's by design, but it does ramp up into like this joyous celebration of this kid who has yeah. these creative goals or dreams that turn into goals and just wants to achieve them. And in doing so, you get to see a very human story be told, one that doesn't need to rely on. There's a level of cliche here, but it doesn't rely on cliches as kind of a, as as the sole way to get through the plotting of this film. It uses these you know these, these standard kind of beats to you know move progress the characters forward, but it is focused on specifically Javid, but these characters. And in that, you get this kind of a delightful picture that's very winning. It has, I mean, the performer we haven't mentioned specifically Javid as a performer, but this is um, uh, Vivek Kalra. It's his. I believe like his lead feature debut here. And he does a tremendous job. I think of anchoring this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think he, you know, I mean, he's not in every frame of the film, but he's in most of them. And, you know, the type of elation that he is feeling and that type of energy is really hard to convey, mm -hmm. um, without going, without it feeling forced and it doesn't feel forced. Like it feels like he, when he's hearing this stuff for the first time, um, it, it feels, it's obviously very freeing. And so the actor needs to strip away some of his own inhibitions as he's responding to this stuff. Uh, and that can be a very hard thing for any actor to do much, much less a young actor to do. Um, he needs to not be afraid to look silly. Uh, and he wasn't afraid to look silly. Um, because the character is experiencing this, this euphoric engagement with, uh, with, music and with art. And so, yeah, I think he does a great job. I think he carries, uh, the film and, you know, uh, especially with, with the father character, but this, this has a fairly large ensemble, albeit of under, you know, underdeveloped characters, but it could have been easy for the main actor to get swallowed up by so many elements of the film. Uh, but he doesn't like, he really, uh, He's really able to carry it, and and I don't know how the film is going to do at the box office, but I have a feeling that this actor is probably going to get a lot more work, and I'm interested to see uh, where he goes from here. For sure. Any other points you want to bring up before we kind of wrap up the review? Um, not that I can, not that I can think of. Just that it was uh, when I first heard about it, my first thought was like, "Oh, this is going to be so cheesy," um, which it is, mm -hmm. but cheesy is okay. 
Yeah. We sometimes we do experience cheesy things in life, and uh, the film really, really taps into that. Like there's a real familiarity. Like there are. Like I didn't when I wrote my review my first paragraph is all about my watching Citizen Kane for the first time when I was 15 and the impact that that had on me. And yes, I know I didn't know then, but I've come to know since then that that's a really cliche thing to talk about is is the impact of Citizen Kane. Well, you know what? I didn't know that it was considered the best movie of all time when I saw it. I heard it was just really good. Uh, But the but and I didn't really appreciate the artistry either. I appreciated the tone of the film and the character arc and the themes of the movie, which of course at 15, I was not in a position to fully understand. Um, but it just, it spoke to me in a way that other movies had not. And I'd been watching older movies and foreign films, uh, by that time. But then I watched citizen Kane. I'm like, this is different. This just feels different to me. Uh, and it's exciting. And that's not exactly an inspiring movie. Uh, but I felt inspired by seeing what struck, what seemed like the truth to me. And I was, I was satisfied to just finally get so many Simpsons jokes. Exa- well, yeah, that's, <laughs> and, and some, uh, some tiny tunes in there as well. Yep, some tiny tunes. Exactly. Um, but, uh, I guess you could just say Warner brothers in general. Um, but, uh, and so like when Javed is experiencing what he is experiencing, it is, it, I, I just, I saw me on the screen I didn't react exactly the way he did. I obviously didn't react to the thing that he uh, reacted to. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I feel like the movie is very specific, but I think any number of people can, can relate to it and see themselves on screen. I would say the film for me, and I'm not sure exactly how fond you are of these films, but it fits right into this nice trifecta with Billy Elliot and Sing Street. Um, it just, there's a winning nature to all of those films and they're all set around the same time period. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They're all 80s movies, but all specifically like London 80s with families dealing with economic struggles as well. There's a lot of connectivity between them, but like it just sat right in that kind of comfort zone for me as far as getting something that has some depth to it, but it's certainly just a, a sweet picture and celebrates music or in Billy Elliot's case, dancing, but there's still a lot of music involved because there's dancing, how to dance or something. Um, I would also, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously those, because of when they take place and them and being British and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously it has a lot in common with those, but from a story beat standpoint, Mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot of orange County. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. Not a film I would have thought of, but maybe I haven't seen it in forever, but yeah, I, 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 as far as, what Colin Hanks's character is specifically going through and where yeah. he ends up. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and the conclusion that he comes to at the end is yeah. is very much the same. Well, when should people go and see Blinded by the Light? Um, I'd say as soon as possible. Um, oh. It's a film that I, I feel like um, I don't know how it's going to do at the box office, but um, I it's it's an original film. It doesn't always feel original, um, but it's not – it's not uh, a franchise. It's it's just a nice, it's just a nice upbeat, well-made film, and it would be nice. Uh, it can be nice to see it on on the big screen because when you see it in a group, then this all become it becomes so much more of a communal experience. Which actually, I don't know. I felt like I was more bonded to the audience because, granted, I went to a critic screening, so it's pe- it's all people who probably had a similar reaction to some work of art as uh, Javid is having to Bruce Springsteen. Uh, but I feel like uh, seeing it uh, seeing it in the theater uh, would be a good thing on a number of levels. 
I'd say the same. I think uh, a theater viewing experience would be beneficial here. I think an, it's a good audience film for it's a crowd pleaser. I mean, it's designed yeah. as much, but I do think it. I mean, along with hearing the sounds of Bruce Springsteen songs presented this way on a you know in a big movie theater sound, you know, it just all works out, and it's just a really good movie. Um, I will say that I did see it at a. Uh, kind of a, 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 a general audience screening um, with my dad, as I mentioned, and I could hear a lot of sniffles during parts, and I could hear a lot mm. of laughter during parts. So, I mean, it certainly had its effect on the audience I was watching it with. But yeah, that's our review for Blinded by the Light, uh, which is in theaters now. Uh, let's move on now. Let's get to some Out Now feedback, 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 where we go over some of the questions and answers on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash outnowpodcast. I asked a number of questions to the listeners. They gave us some answers. Then they gave us a question that we can answer. Um, so these first two questions, these are Blinded by the Light related. Um, what are your favorite mu- non-musical films about music? Justin writes, Song Remains the Same, The Doors, Alan Has That Thing You Do, and Sing Street, and Scott Has The Commitments. Tyler, any non-musical films about music? Um, I mean, uh, somebody said that thing you do already. Uh, that is a just a really marvelous, uh, a really marvelous movie. Um, I mean, Amadeus uh, is another yeah. example, um, and there and there are pro- undoubtedly others, uh, but those are off the top of my head. That thing you do is the immediate thought that I had, and yes, Amadeus does come up also, and I mentioned Sing Street already, but yeah, that's one there. But that thing you do, I'm curious, do you think that's going to like ascend to become a classic in some capacity? Because it's so unassuming, but it's so likable. Yeah, I don't actually know. It is such a... This is going to sound weird. I think I think it's a perfect movie. I don't think it's remarkably ambitious, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's trying to get it too much. But you know, as far as what it was, what it's trying to do, I think it achieves it a hundred percent. And there are there are certain. I don't think it's ever going to be seen as a classic by by the metric you put to Citizen Kane or what have you. Yeah, and and just I don't think it will be widely considered a classic, but there there will be a small section of people uh, in the future that will have tr- such affection for that movie, and and I'm definitely one of them. I think part of that comes from the fact that it's a '90s movie set in the '50s, and there's yeah. similar to something like American Graffiti, which I know many would argue is probably a more accomplished picture, especially for the time that it came out in. But I mean, because it, it, it inspired films like that thing you do to a degree. Um, but I, there is something that just it feels unstuck in time as far as when it was made, just because it conveys a certain period with a certain tone so effectively for what it's doing. And I don't pick up on any of the it's also a film that's remarkably sincere. You know, we were talking before about when a movie portrays an earlier time, there's always the 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 temptation to get kind of smug about certain things Mm -hmm. and the film might have that but i can't think of any instances like i think of it as a film that just is willing to be where it is find the good in it find the bad in it um but it's not a film that i feel like looks back uh with the benefit of hindsight i think it's really trying to be in the moment um yeah with all the naivete and and potential cynicism that that comes with it uh but yeah it's it's a film that is just it's such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it, it speaks to... We're going along with that thing you do, but I don't mind because I love that thing you do. But mm. it speaks to, I think, Tom Hanks' sensibilities as a filmmaker where he's sure. made that and he obviously he produced uh, from Earth and directed one episode of From Earth to the Moon and Band of Brothers and The Pacific. And I think Larry Crown is a disaster. But I do think he has a... He, he The kind of thing he seems to want to do when he actually steps behind the camera is present, a t- present purity in some sense. Yeah. And... 
which is is vitally important, the music is good. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like all of it. Mm-hmm. It's not just the title track, which is imperative and it needs to be great, mm-hmm. but all the music in it is really good. Like if you, you could listen to that soundtrack and enjoy it just on its own. Um, so that's, you know, it, it, the film is kind of its own little celebration of music, which means that the music that we hear needs to be uh, memorable and fun. Without being irritating after a while. Either. Exactly. Um, our next question in relation to uh, how Jabba chooses to stand out. What are your favorite films about rebels? Catherine writes the breakfast club. Graham has star Wars and Todd has Pee Wee's big adventure. Hmm. Eh, probably taxi driver. <laughs> sure. I mean, he's a rebel in his own way. Yeah. James Dean has a film about that. I think. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. East of Eden, right? Yeah. yeah. Giant actually is what I was referring to. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, um it's i'm i'm kind of joking when i say when i say taxi driver uh because though there's nothing there's nothing in the question about like aspirational you know Mm -hmm. like these aren't rebels that i'm aspiring to be like um so uh i'm gonna say some like some boring ones uh a man for all seasons Mm -hmm. um is about a guy rebelling against the king of england um and well easy rider of course came up earlier when we talked about yeah I kind of feel like it's – again, I, I'm thinking more in terms of like a rebellious spirit. So I'd say sure. something like Lawrence of Arabia um, because he's very much just on the outside of the British military certainly um, mm-hmm. and they just do not understand how he operates. Um, but yeah, and, and I'm uh, of course there are many, many others, but, uh, but those are what come to mind. Uh, my next two questions are focused more on Where'd You Go, Bernadette? This is the new Richard Linklater film. Um, my lovely girlfriend and I, we saw this yesterday. I thought it was a bit of a misfire for Linklater, which I know is kind of the the consensus, it seems, but I, I just I don't differ from it. I think there is a lot of good things in the film. I think Kate Blanchett, give, I mean, she's generally very good in movies, and she she certainly commits to this character here, but the tone, tonally, it just kind of feels off. It feels like Linklater... I know he adapted this novel as a best-selling novel, um, and he co-wrote the film, but I, I just never got a sense that he really, he and I guess the other co-writers really capitalized on what they wanted to say within the structure of this movie. Like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't never leans too hard on the comedy, it never leans too hard on drama. You have a number of characters that are still somewhat all over the place. I think there's an aspect of the film that, from what I've been told, is kind of key to it as far as the where'd you go aspect it feels like that's been truncated so i'm not sure if there's a longer version of this movie that doesn't exist but yeah overall it's just like okay (laughs) i i've not watched the trailer i don't even really know what the movie is about it so kate blanchett plays bernadette fox she's a former architect living in seattle with her husband played by billy crudup which right there it's like well that's cool like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it seems like a nice duo and you know you got things she has a daughter um who goes to school Kristen wig plays like the leader of a bunch of neighbors that are not too fond of Bernadette because she's can be an acerbic type of character okay. and it deal it, the film mostly deals with her uh, I guess kind of not necessarily unraveling but we kind of just see a, we see what's kind of become of her since having this reputation as an architect and where she's been in the last 20 years and it's just not the most like positive of things to positive per, of personalities and due to that it it leads her to make certain choices that exacerbate everything around her, including her family life, including the other neighbors and what have you. And uh, I mean, that's the best way I can surmise it without kind of giving up where it goes. But it, 
it just feels like there is elements there that feel like Linklet, like I could see why Linklater was attracted to this, but at the same time, the film as a whole feels very unremarkable for him as a filmmaker. And, and I'm curious if like he's biding time before he gets to something that feels much more personal and passionate. Cause I like the, this previous film, last flag flag flying. That was another one where it's like, well, I, I see what you're doing here. And there's a lot of just characters talking and ruminating, which is very link later, but it also doesn't feel like essential to this filmmaker's oeuvre. So, yeah, I think of, Richard Linklater is like sort of a shaggy dog filmmaker mm -hmm. who makes shaggy dog stories. Mm -hmm. um, and while, you know, the sequel to uh, The Last Detail could qualify, mm -hmm. um, I do think that I don't hmm, probably going to get some flack for this. I think Richard Linklater, when he is, you know, what he's like Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is a limited actor, but when he is within his range, there are very few people that are better. All right. And I think that Richard Linklater is actually a pretty limited director. And I don't just mean stylistically. I think I also kind of mean emotionally. Um, when he is, when he's like in his elements, it's, it can be as varied as boyhood or school of rock, mm -hmm. but, but they're both great for what they are because he seems to really, uh, have a sense of what he is trying to do and, and can relate to these characters. Um, but but I don't think his style and his sensibility can work with every genre or every story. You know, where where'd you go, Bernadette? Sounds like it's more of just sort of a, a drama with maybe some comedy in there, um, which is something he's able to do. But it has to be a very specific type of story. And that is not the type of story that I associate with him. So I, obviously it's fine for him. And I, and I haven't seen the movie. Um, so I, who knows, maybe I would love it. Um, but, uh, but it sounds like, you know, he's trying to stretch himself as a filmmaker, which is always a good thing. Sure. Uh, but it's not always necessarily going to work. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, what is your favorite Richard Linklater film? Scott writes any in the sunrise trilogy, Rachel writes the before the sunrise trilogy, uh, the before trilogy and boyhood Todd writes school of rock and Alan has dazed and confused. Where are you at with Linklater as far as your favorites? Probably, probably either School of Rock or Dazed and Confused. I think Dazed and Confused is more of an achievement mm -hmm. um, from an ensemble and really trying to capture a period. Um, and I think he does that. Uh, and and again, just a sort of a general mood. Um, but I definitely enjoy School of Rock a lot. And that is its own type of achievement um, with its own type of ensemble. Um, but... Uh, but that um, in a way that almost feels so much like Jack Black's movie um, that uh, that the director seems somewhat inconsequential. I'm still an auteurist. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, so I would I would venture to say probably Dazed and Confused. I'm a huge I mean, I, I really like Boyhood. I really responded to it. It was my number one of that year. It feels like a kind of his magnum opus, which I'm sure mm -hmm. given that he filmed it over, you know, Oh, more than a decade, I, I get that. That's probably what he would consider it as well. But Boyhood, I think Before Sunrise is my favorite, or sorry, Before Sunset is my favorite of that trilogy. I am a huge Days and Confused fan as well. And School of Rock, I'll, if it's on, I'll watch it. Um, and I, I really like speaking up for A Scanner Darkly. I, I really like that movie quite a bit. I, I, that was one that I responded to. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, there is a, um, 
there's an experimental nature to him as well mm-hmm. uh, that I really respect. And A Scanner Darkly and Waking Life Waking kind of Life. fit that. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at his filmography, there are a couple that I forgot. I do love Bernie. I'm a Bernie's big fan great. of Bernie. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but at the same time, I also hate Fast Food Nation. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Tape, Tape is a, re- is a, really, a really great one. Um, That's another interesting one for sure. And I remember I watched Suburbia when I was a, a teenager, and I responded to that. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, when I what I was saying earlier, I don't mean to imply that he is a bad filmmaker, not at all. Sure. Uh, just that when he is, you know, I didn't see I didn't see the Newton Boys. Did you? I've seen the Newton Boys, and I don't need to see it again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Um, and that that to go back to the Shaggy Dog uh, aspect, that film seems like it's sort of that uh, as well, and so. There's a way to bring his sensibility to movies that might not seem like uh, they have it, but uh, but yeah, um, would you uh, just as maybe almost as a curiosity and maybe as like a completist, would you recommend that somebody see Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Uh, I mean, I gave it two and a half stars, which is like a I watched this and it's not terrible, but like it's not essential. If, if you're a big fan of Kate Blanchett, or if you're just if you again if you're a completist for Richard Linklater, I mean I don't think there's a reason not to like see it. I just don't think there's a way to I don't there's a reason to you know race out to the theaters to see it right now, even though okay. Annapurna as a film studio is struggling tremendously. <laughs> but, um, um, well, with that in mind, what's your favorite Kate Blanchett performance? Rachel writes favorite is Cinderella and Thor Ragnarok. Best is probably Blue Jasmine. Justin has that new Cinderella AV. Aviator, Thor Ragnarok. I liked her in A House of a Clock in Its Walls and The Monuments Men. Uh, I mean, it, gosh, there's a lot of options. I do. I adore her in Elizabeth. Right. Elizabeth, right? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Elizabeth and then the sequel, Elizabeth, The Golden Age. That's the one. Yes. <laughs> um, I think she's shit in that one. But in the first one, she's great. Um, uh, yeah, she, I love her in that. I think she's great in Carol. I love her in Blue Jasmine. Um, she. Uh, I think she's marvelous in notes on a scandal um it is not a very showy type of character mm-hmm. um as opposed to some of these others um but i do really love her in that um i also think she is great in the good german um doing kind of this uh, old-timey type character um and the good that's an interesting film you bring up because i think when i think of you were talking about Linklater and his ability not that they're on the same level necessarily, but I do think Soderbergh a lot when I think of Linklater as far as the kind of d- the the drive between the kinds of films they make where some are more, you know, big studio stuff. Right. And there's there's dramatically less for Linklater in that case, but there's also a lot of passion plays or experimental things that I think the two certainly share as far as the kinds of films they're making. I do think that uh, Soderbergh is maybe it's he's ambitious in a different way. Obviously, sure, when you make yeah. a movie over 12 years, um, that's ambitious. Uh, but uh, Soderbergh, I think from an experimentation standpoint, I think he's a bit more ambitious, like the fact that he's willing to jump from one genre to another to another to another, just yeah. almost to see if he can do it um, with mixed results, uh, admittedly. But um, yes, he's a, he's a larger journeyman than uh, yeah. Linklater is. Yeah. And yet I feel like I, I there's always a certain kind of tone to a Soderbergh movie, whether whether it be the good German or Solaris or Traffic or Aaron Brockovich or Out of Sight, like mm-hmm. just 
those are very different movies. And while I wouldn't say that they all feel exactly the same, there is a very there's a, a certain type of immediacy that I feel like Soderbergh brings to his movies, uh, a sense of urgency, um, even in a film as meditative as uh, Solaris. Um, yeah, there are through lines there. I mean, the same way that yeah. like I don't know, Ang Lee is a journeyman, but I can see a lot of connectivity between the films that he makes. Oh like sure, it, it's it exists. Like it's not just like he's jumping. It's not you know, it's not. It's not a studio guy that's just like I'm making this movie, then I'm making that movie. You know, it's not. Right. It's not Brett Ratner. <laughs> it is not. You're correct. Okay. Um, let's get to our question. We have one question here. It's from Rachel. Um, was there any music or pop culture you were obsessed with as a teen? Oh, jeez. Well, what? What? How are we counting pop culture? Just like anything. I guess anything that you kind of you put a focus on as far as where your interests lied at that time. Uh. Oh, are you going to answer it? I'm trying to think of okay. something that's specific. I mean, uh, movies beyond are... just beyond just saying movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was really I was really into movies. And within that, um, as a teenager, you know, it's tough because like at 13 and 14, I was into certain types of movies and then 15 rolls around and I start to branch out a lot. Uh, and so there really isn't much of a to go back to that word through line. There isn't much of a through line of like the movies I was into Um it, w- it probably wouldn't be until my 20s that I started to really develop a passion for certain types of movies. Um, I will mention um, a certain type of computer game uh, that I played from age like 10. No, it maybe even, yeah, of like age 9 or 10 through probably 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, I think they've come to be called adventure games. Um the point and point and click games like point and click yeah uh but but it's not like pov either like your character's on the screen you can see him or her and then you can explore the the world but there's also a story going on um and so the the two big companies were lucasarts and sierra uh and while i appreciated lucasarts i think i preferred sierra because i think the storytelling was a little bit more complex um and at the time my series was uh, the because they, they did all these different quest series. Um, and I think Space Quest, which was sort of a comedy that if you're a Futurama fan, I think you would enjoy it quite a bit, actually. Um, but the Space Quest series like really kind of informed my sense of humor in a lot of ways. Uh, but then there was a series called Gabriel Knight. Um, and there were three of them, but I only really played the first one. It had a killer voice cast. It was designed really beautifully, really complex story. Um and some and some solid writing. Um, that was one that I really responded to, uh, and probably informed some of my sensibilities too. Like, I I go I I sometimes will go back and watch not in its entirety, but I'll watch like a long play of Gabriel Nine. Be like, okay, yeah, I can definitely see how playing this in 1993 informed the type of movies that I would come to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, looking at for me being a high schooler. And just being a teenager between like 99 and 2003 specifically, I think of when like between the emerging DVD market and just kind of the films I'm seeing at that time, my focus was a lot on like crime comedy. It's edgy because you you get Tarantino, you get Guy Ritchie breaking out at that point. So you get Lock, Stock and Snatch. You get uh, and like on a video game front, I get something like Grand Theft Auto. Um, So it's like a lot of that type of material. And then like Tarantino's films are hitting DVD for the first time. So I'm getting Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs. Like all of that came out like within a week of each other uh, back when that occurred. So it's like that's a lot. That's certainly informing a lot of 
where my interest in film is and just kind of what kind of material I'm engaging with at that point. So that'd be the, I guess, where, where I'm at in that area. Yeah. I guess when I was 16, I think I probably 15 or 16 is when I really started getting into like noir. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, Maltese Falcon and double indemnity and then, uh, and then 97 LA confidential came out and then my dad said, well, if you like this, you'd like Chinatown. Um, and so just that a very specific type, they're not crime comedies, but they are funny in their own way, like because yeah. they're just so damn snappy. Um, and so I started getting into those uh, quite a bit, probably in my teenage years. And I, I would say that those are probably my were my favorite films at the time. There you go. All right. As on now, feedback, feedback, feedback. Let's move on to uh, Out Now Presents What's Out Now. These are movies that are coming out on Blu-ray, DVD, 4K streaming and all that stuff this week. Feel free to give a yay or nay to these as I go through them if you've seen them. Um, let's see. First up on Blu-ray and 4K this week, we have Brightburn. Yeah. Oh, that's coming out. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see it. I had heard mixed things, but I'm still I'm still interested. I thought it was good. Okay. Not great, but good. And I think it, it delivers more as a creepy kid horror film than it does a superhero satire. Sure. But I liked it for that reason, mainly because I like creepy kid movies. Um, let's see. A Dog's Journey. This is one of the dog movies that came out earlier this year. Right. Um, the Hustle. That's the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Remake, oh, yes. Um, which I believe... I believe David was a not fan of it all. <laughs> he was not, no. Yeah. And The Biggest Little Farm, that documentary that I got that got rave reviews. Um, let's see. On TV, you got The Walking Dead Season 9, Arrow Season 7, and American God Season 2. Uh, especially stuff we have from Warner Archive, The Witches, is out this week hmm. on Blu-ray. Um, from Arrow, you have Cruising, the controversial William Friedkin Al Pacino feature. Yeah. And uh, from Shout Factor, you have Horror of Frankenstein, another hammer. And um, The Harder They Come with Jimmy Cliff, a film that I'm a big fan of. And I got it already, and I'm very excited about that to watch it again. I feel like such a bad film fan. I haven't. I don't think I've seen any of those. Okay. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen The Witches. Uh, oh, no, I did see The Witches. Oh, <laughs> so between the two of us, we're, we've got it covered. Yeah. On Criterion is Magnificent Obsession this week for Criterion fans. Um, on Netflix this week, we have Mindhunter Season 2, which I've been waiting years for, so I'm very, very excited about. There. Yeah. And um, Invader Zim, Enter the Thorpus, hmm. for fans of that old Nicktoon series. Um, actually, my mom was a big fan of Invader Zim, of all things. Hmm. Um, and on Prime this week, we have Jim Gaffigan, Quality Time. There's a new stand-up special on Prime Prime. Um, let's see. Next week's show. Next week, I'm not sure yet. We have um, Angel Has Fallen is out um ready or not is out which i'm hearing great things about the um horror comedy there so that might be one that we consider uh, but yeah next week is a bit open so we'll see when an abe gets back here we'll see what we want to do um, but last thing we do here is what should people go and see now and what do you plan to see next tyler what should people see in theaters right now uh let's see well i mean this one obviously um let me see what is in theaters right now i've been kind of i've been working on projects that have kind of uh kept me away from larger society. I mean, I'm sure you've probably said it already, but uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, is still in theaters. That's definitely worth watching. Um, and that's it. All right. What do you see next? Uh, knowing me, I will probably... Uh, it, it didn't get great reviews, but I was still interested anyway. I'm probably going to see Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. That's probably the next thing I'm going to see. 
you know what? I'm I'm a fan. Okay. <laughs> so, like, I, I think it does what it tries to do well enough. <laughs> I think of you as a very positive person. What's the last movie you really, really didn't like? Really didn't like? Yeah. Child's Play. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the last movie I, like, downright just really despised. Like, okay. there are movies that I haven't liked, sure. But, yeah, that's one where I was like, Ugh. <laughs> like, all of this bothers me. Okay. Because um, it's more like, you know, I think you know this. I tend to, I try to find the good, even in, like, bad movies. Or something yeah. like, like The Kitchen from last week. I think there's a handful of scenes that are very good in a movie that's totally confused and just doesn't quite know how to accomplish what it wants to do. Um, but yeah, Child's Play is one that, that just kind of got me all messed up in the wrong ways. I just did not like it. Um. <laughs> it's always funny when it's a movie like that because, I mean, it wasn't a small movie or anything, but it's just such an inconsequential film. You it know? is, and that's kind of my that's one of my biggest problems. I have other problems with it. That's why I despised it because I have other problems beyond just why did this exist? Like Lion King. It's like, well, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I would recommend Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well, uh, and Blinded by the Light, of course, and The Nightingale, the Jennifer Kent film, if you can find it. Right? Oh sure, yeah. And um, yeah. All right, with all that said, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Out Now There and an Abe. You can find more of my work on my personal blog, the CodeIsZeke.com. Everything I do ends up over there. I'm also writing at WhyTheBlue.com for Blu-ray and Criterion reviews, as well as on We Live Entertainment, where I'm also covering Preacher for its final season. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Aaron's PS4 Tyler. Where can people find more of you? Uh, you can find me at uh, BattleshipPretension.com. It is a uh, podcast that's been running for 12 years, and we have new episodes every week. Uh, but then there are, there's a lot of uh, written content as well, almost all of it from David. Um, occasional uh, reviews from contributors, but it's mostly him. So, uh, But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of fun stuff uh, over at BattleshipPretension.com. Great. You can find all the other episodes about Now Theron and Abe on iTunes, Audioboom, and Spotify, and Stitcher. You can find us, you can email us at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, facebook.com slash outnowpodcast, twitter.com slash outnow underscore podcast, and instagram.com slash outnow underscore podcast. And of course, we only have a few weeks left until It Chapter 2 comes out, so send plenty of scary clown gifts over to Abe at outnowpodcast.tumblr.com. Tyler Smith, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was, I'm glad to have you for this nice one-on-one discussion. We got a, got a lot covered, I'd say. Sure, yeah. yeah. But, uh, too, uh, maybe next, too much. Perhaps. The listeners will tell us. Uh, but until next time, that's going to do it here. So, so long and goodbye. Madman drummers, bombers, and Indians in the summer with a teenage diplomat. In the dumps with the mumps as the adolescent pumps his way into his hat. With a boulder on my shoulder, feeling kind of older, I trip the merry-go-round. With this very unpleasing sneezing and wheezing, the calliope crashed to the ground. Some old hot-hat shot was heading for a hot spot, snapping his fingers, clapping his hands. And some flesh-wise mascot was tied to a lover's knot with a whatnot in her